Hello, and welcome to a brand new series of Chaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Mooncat, or should I say Gary, is Europal Ocho, otherwise known as... Mr. Tilteraisa. So, what is going on with us dropping these non-diplumes? We kind of got stuck with them at the beginning of the sitcom club, because originally that was a radio show on an internet radio station that was an add-on to a message board. We used our message board names because sitcom club was just not really a real podcast it was we do the show and it's like oh we'll upload them later and then people can have a listen and since then i think there are people listening who don't remember the original days of sitcom club and have no association with the cooked and bombed message board and also i did that guest appearance on the just one more thing colombo podcast and it didn't seem right it seemed a bit cute to use the name ocho so Thought, right, we're entering a new phase of our podcasting thing, so let's also have relatively normal names. The deal is this. We're back for our new series in the section of the year where we'd normally have a series of the sitcom club. However, the sitcom club is now going to alternate on a fortnightly basis with Jaffa Cakes for Proust. So here we are with Jaffa Cakes this week. Next week will be sitcom club. Week after that will be Jaffa Cakes and so on, right up until the end of the year. Now, this will be the last little one for the sitcom club for the foreseeable future. I think that we've pretty much exhausted all avenues of investigation with regard to sitcom for at least for a while. So that's the arrangement. It's going to be sitcom club alternating with Jeff Geeks for Proust fortnightly basis till the end of the year. And then at some point next year, we'll be back with a full uninterrupted run of Jeff Geeks for Proust. And then I think that will still continue fortnightly, yes. Well, I suspect so. But I mean, it could be down to popular demand. If people are banging on my door and saying, you must release a new podcast, you must, you must, you can't leave us hanging like this, as if you're Buster Crab, then we'll see. We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, of course, we've been experimenting with our Jaffa Cake Jukebox show, which is available at sitcomclub.com. And of course, as you have heard us mention on the last few episodes of Sitcom Club and Jaffa Cakes for Proust, we are, of course, now part of the Podnose podcasting network. So if you go to podnose.com, you'll find all manner of other podcasts alongside ourselves. So yes, it really is. It's a nice new era. And yeah, you might notice that my mic quality is a little bit better because I've had a bit of an upgrade. And I'm actually sitting here in a move surrounded by bubble wrap and pillows. So this time on Jeff Gakes for Proust, we're looking at The Good Companions, Yorkshire television production from 1980, based on the J.B. Priestley novel which had already had two movies and two musicals made from it. And I picked this because while the DVD release from Network had brought it to a few people's attention, you can find a few articles online about it, I just thought it needed a little bit more profile raising because it's an interesting story. I think it has things in its format to say about the way television's changed. And it also picks up on something a button that I've been pressing on the last few sitcom clubs, the whole idea of people being the heroes of their own stories. There are some stories you get that are particularly popular with a certain demographic now, I think, about heroes being the most interesting people, and you get protagonist-centred morality, and everybody else is what I think in gaming you'd call a non-playing character and they can be treated in a rather cavalier fashion. That's all right. Simple-minded, straightforward narratives, or even narratives focused on one person, they're entertaining or or thoughtful. 
But something that really catches my eye is when you get characters who are not really that important to the narrative, but you get a sense that as soon as they walk off, their lives will continue. Just get a little sense of who they are. And I think The Good Companions is stuffed full of that. It's going to sound like an odd comparison. It's probably more a tangent, to be honest. But it's one of the reasons why I've never actually taken to the genre known as action movies. I've never really found myself happy with just focusing on one or two or a small number of characters when there's devastation all around. So say, for example, it's something like, I don't know, Armageddon or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, everything's sort of focused on the main guy, the main hero of the piece. And as long as that guy and Lady by Side and what have you are okay, then it doesn't matter if tens of millions of other people have perished and whatever the hell's going on. Superhero movies can be very bad for that. Superhero stories in general can suffer from that. But I have to be honest, and regular listeners to the show will know that I am a confirmed Philistine. So I was roughly aware of someone called J.B. Priestley. I had not heard of The Good Companions. I didn't know that it was a book and had already been adapted into a film or stage play or anything like that. And so I came to this rather cold. In fact, the how this actually came about is we'd been discussing, presumably we'd been discussing matters of a geographical nature. And at some point we had ended up focusing on Bradford because that's, <laughs> your, that's your background. That's where you're from. And I think you said to me, this show is the most Bradfordian show that you could find. And straight away I said, oh, is Leslie Sands in it? And yet you said, yes, he is. He's the narrator of it. And so I thought, okay, sounds interesting. So that's where it developed and it came from there. And yeah, I have to admit, yeah, I'd never heard of it at all. I mean, obviously I'd heard of Alan Plater's work and seen some of his work in the past. Do you want to say at the outset just now, do you want to say about the interesting little detail about this and why this has got nine episodes? Yes, I will. I mean, I was kind of kidding when I said it's the most Bradford thing ever. I'm sure if I kept looking, I'd find something. So, The Good Companions, the novel was a popular success, but not a critical success. You're saying that you're a Philistine. It was seen as a bit frothy and not really high-flown enough. It's adapted by Alan Plater. Yorkshire Television approached him, gave him the book and said, can you write a 13-parter? He read it and he said, it doesn't really feel like 13 parts. It feels more like nine. I think as we get to the end of this podcast, we might argue that it's actually eight and a half. So he said, look, I'll do nine and then I'll also do four of something else as part of the deal. Those last four scripts were a show called Get Lost, which was a sufficient success to spawn a sequel supposed to be called Get Lost Revisited, there were actor availability matters arising, it got rewritten and became the Beiderbecke Affair. And now you know the rest of the story. Just want to reiterate one thing that you said there, because we just had the 60th anniversary of ITV, of course, just the other week. You're describing a programme that was on ITV that was described as a bit too frothy and not highfalutin enough. Imagine that in 2015. <laughs> well, no, it was the book that was given that reputation. The television show, I have only managed to find two reviews, and one of them's positive, one of them's negative. But I do get the feeling it was seen as something of an expensive flop, and in his memoirs, Alan Plater said, where did we go wrong? Maybe we were not as clever as we thought we were. We didn't leave enough room for the audience. I don't actually find that a problem with this. 
The only thing is, is this show is not at all suitable for binge watching. Just rewatched it for the third time, and this time I watched three episodes a day, and it doesn't work. This is a picaresque narrative. I'm going to disagree with you on that. Because as is often the way with these podcasts, you know, we do end up sort of binge watching these things because, you know, we're sort of compressing, you know, long series into a short space of time. So we've got time to record and edit the show and so on. So there were times when I was watching three episodes a day and actually I didn't find that show at all. That I actually found it that after I'd watched one, I immediately wanted to go on to the next one. And then a few That's hours later, I thought, yeah, I, I don't want to wait for tomorrow. I want to see. And so, yeah, no, I was I was quite hooked on it. I found it a lovely show. I found it really, really engaging. And I didn't really have any expectations as far as coming into it because I'm, I'm not really somebody who's particularly up on sort of musicals and what have you. The, the funny thing is that I've always enjoyed musicals when I've had exposure to them, but I've never gone out of my way to go looking for them. And here I am in, in a big city with access to, you know, major musicals playing at the theatres and so on, so I really should make more of what's available on my doorstep. Yes, that's the other thing. The Good Companions is a musical. Oh, didn't we mention that? I didn't know that coming into it. First, I just bought on spec when the DVD came out, thinking it was going to be an engaging story about stage performers. It gets to a certain point in the first episode. And they start singing and they're not on stage. And it's like, oh, okay. It's it's really odd to see musical on multi-camera videotape. I've never seen Rock Follies. I gather that had been a success in 1977. So there had been such a thing, but it was a slightly disorientating experience. If I'd seen musicals on television, on videotape television, it would be a camera pointed at a stage there'd definitely be a sense that there's an audience behind the camera or it would be a movie. So that was a bit peculiar. But let's start breaking this down because it has three central characters. I think that's maybe one of the reasons this couldn't be an instant success. You have to have three episodes before the story proper starts. And we start with Jess Orcroyd <laughs> of the town of Brodersford. <laughs> Deary me. Jess O'Croyd, he's a working class factory worker. He's of a certain age. He lives with his wife and his son. And he's a simple man of simple pleasures. And he's of the age of a job for life. And his life just starts to get disturbed. He's made redundant. It's decided that they should take in a lodger and he's dead against the idea. And so to prove that he has a place in the world, to prove that he has a certain amount of his own willpower... He leaves home. I've kind of galloped through that. I don't know if it's worth mentioning that the reason he gets fired is because of a clash between management and unions, which is interesting because, I mean, Priestley is a socialist writer. He kind of gets crushed between two political forces that are both in it for themselves. Now, I don't think there's much to be spun out of that. Anyway, you're the political one in this. Well, it's interesting that, as you say, Priestley's a socialist writer, and yet he's not, he's not got blinkers on. So he's able to sort of recognise that, nonetheless, especially at a time of transition, with trade unions coming in and becoming a force to be reckoned with in the workplace, that this was going to cause problems for a good many people. Well, there's a thing in this. There's, you ever seen the film Night of the Hunter? No. Okay. There's a line from the Bible that's constantly quoted in that, and it's arguably one of the messages of the film. And by their fruits shall you know them. Just basically, it doesn't really matter who they are. It's what they do and the consequences of what they do. That's the important thing. I think there's a lot of that in this as well. And when we move on to our second character, do you have anything else to say about Jess Orcroyd? 
Well, only that I agree with you that it is an odd beginning for the show because I suspect that if if you were already familiar with the piece, because it was a musical with Judy Dench five years previous to this. So I suppose if you've seen that, and maybe if you read the book, of course, then you're going to be ready for that arrangement. But yes, otherwise it is a little bit odd that you're having that slow build up. And I suspect that if this was a 2015 adaptation, almost certainly by Mark Gattis, that it would just truncate all of that. It would probably truncate the first four episodes into one, I suspect. I think it would just rush all the way through Jess and Inigo and, and just before you know it, oh, the whole crew's there, there we are. Yeah, I mean, our story starts with Jess Orcroyd meeting Elizabeth Trent, find out more about Elizabeth Trent in a bit, and then, then both going off to a cafe to meet a theatrical troupe called the Dinky Doos. And then we have the big flashback and it fills in Jess's life and what brings him to being alongside the Dinky Doos. And then episode two goes back and it's right, Elizabeth Trent will go right from the beginning of her story, which starts after her father's death. And then episode three, all about Inigo Jolifant, who in episode one is just sort of sitting on the sides. He seems to be less important than the character he's with, Morton Mitchum. Boy, we're going to be throwing a lot of character names at you. He just seems to sit on the side going, oh, that's the stuff, absolutely. And there's not really, I would say, much of a sense in episode one that he's going to be the third principal character. And then in episode four, we actually get the story of the Good Companions, the theatrical troupe, the three characters from outside their world who come to help them and how they get changed. And that's why I said I'm not sure it really would work for binge watching because it's like, right, the story proceeds and then flip back and then the story proceeds and then flip back. Now, when you've had the time for the story to fade in your mind a little, resuming from an earlier point and going through it all again, I think is okay. Whereas I, I found it a bit disorientating this time watching it in big chunks. You've got a point there because I didn't start watching it or binge watching it until I got to sort of episode four or five. So yes, the first three episodes, they were a bit more spaced out. Watched them over the course of a week. That sort of makes sense. One other thing to say as well, because we're going to keep on coming back to this, is that from that second episode, you realise just how many names are in this. Well, actually, you know, the first episode, you've got Dennis Lawson engaged in a little bit of musical repartee. That's when the musical part really gets disorientating for me. First time, right, it's the Dinky Doos, they're a theatrical troupe. Okay, this is a musical and they're singing about how awful it is. They've found themselves stranded because their manager has run off with the takings. They're stuck in a town and they have no money to move on, no job to move on to. Okay, that's unusual, but... You have to make these adjustments in a musical, but it's there's still, I think, characters you expect to sing and don't expect to sing, or don't expect to sing at that point. Then we go back into Jess's life, and we're talking about his wife and his son, and they're deciding to take this lodger, played by Dennis Lawson, and the son and the lodger start singing about where they're going on Friday night. So you have a big musical number in the middle of this small, working-class 1930s, 1920s, Terraced House. Catchy number. I've got it stuck in my head. Rather, rather, quite, quite. So do, should we just run through some of the names in this then? Because, yeah, first one you have Dennis Lawson and Alfred Lynch. Alfred Lynch is Joby Jackson, who's one of those guys who sets up a stall and come on, gather round, and I'm not going to charge you this, I'm not going to charge you that. Is he a sort of private walker but 20 years earlier? Think Del Boy, but up and down the country instead of just in Peckham. Episode two, we had an appearance 
by Nigel Hawthorne. He can't have been cheap. And the thing is that that reminded me a little bit of Map and Lucia because most of his scenes were outside. And yet everything in this, with the exception of one piece which we'll come to, but everything in this nine-parter is videotaped. So seeing Nigel Hawthorne, outdoors, sunny day, videotaped, it just reminded me straight away of Map and Lucia. And Reverend Chillingford is definitely closer to Georgie than he is to Sir Humphrey. He's not quite as fair, but he's very softly spoken and friendly and approachable. Funnily enough, Sir Humphrey was only just beginning to emerge as a character on television around about this very same time that The Good Companions aired. So Nigel Hoffman wasn't yet synonymous with the character. We get to episode three and we have Nigel Stock, possibly these days maybe remembered for being in one episode of The Prisoner and being Dr. Watson opposite Douglas Wilmer and Peter Cushing's Sherlock Holmes is Tim Wilton from The Dustbin Men and My Hero. And he's also in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, but I'd like to think of him as Tim Wilson from The Dustbin Men. Gordon Gostolo from Tripper's Day. Hey. <laughs> Colin Higgins, who I only recognise from one sketch in Paul Merton the series, but he counts. Episode 5, we get Willoughby Goddard. Episode 6, Patricia Brake. Oh, whoa, 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 hang on a second, hang on a second. You can't just skate over Willoughby Goddard like that, because if you're going to say that people are from sketch shows like Paul Merton the series, don't forget that Willoughby Goddard was a founder member of the Not Now Hot News team. So episode 7, Bill Dean and John Comer. A couple of things to point out about them. One, fact fans. I know this is kind of bullshit that I normally throw in, just to try and catch Ocho off guard, but I guarantee this is true. Bill Dean was one of the first guests on the first edition of The Word. That's absolutely true. Secondly, where can I get a life-size John Comer cutout? Because I want one. Props department, Yorkshire Television. (laughs) (laughs) Episode 8, Ray Mort, Robin Bailey, and the one that surprised me the most, Roy Kinnear. But again, what I said about people being the heroes of their own stories, it really helps if a character who's only going to be in it for five minutes is played by somebody you recognise. Oh, and episode nine, Harold Innocent. And I've probably missed some. I really wanted to see Robin Bailey, strangely with her Birmingham accent, which I'd never heard from before. He was a policeman in episode eight. I wanted to hear him burst into song. I just wanted to hear him (laughs) sing a policeman's lot is not a happy one or something like that. A song about how they don't like North Country comedians. You know that Python sketch? It's quite an early one and it's set in a courtroom and suddenly it switches into a musical. Yes. And yes, yeah, so the judge is singing about, you know, if I wasn't a judge, what I'd like to be an engine driver and so on and so on. And then John Cleese picks up the second verse, but nobody else it's is joining gra- I think in. Graham Chapman, I think, is the policeman and sings about being a window cleaner and John Cleese is the barrister. <laughs> Things about being a train driver and nobody's with him, yes. That's what I wanted to happen in this. I wanted Robin Bailey to just go off and one everybody else has just stood there. And eventually he realises there's no quarters. Oh, I forgot to mention John Savident. And John Poi. Sharp. And Robin Parkinson. Yes, that's yes. right. Yes, yeah. of course. They're everywhere. Who's the Scottish doctor? I don't know. I he didn't recognise him. He, he probably is somebody, but yeah. uh, I, I just limited myself to people who provoked a hey that guy reaction oh one of the guys in the first episode is a patron in the inn in carry on dick where jack douglas is trying to get a look at his old fella with magnifying glass but for for legitimate reasons i mean there there are storyline reasons for that so jess o'croyd has lost his job and walked out on his family 
He's been given money. He's been robbed of that money. He's met the hypocritical side of human nature. He has breakfast at John Savident's cafe, and John Savident goes on about humanity. That's what it's about, humanity. (laughs) And then when he finds that Jess has been robbed, he thinks that Jess is trying to cheat him, and all the humanity goes out of the room, and Jess has to pay for his breakfast by leaving behind a chisel. He meets Joby Jackson, the travelling salesman of dodgy novelties. That's (laughs) cheap (laughs) things, cheap toys. He meets Dotty Buddy. And Joby is is a much more welcoming character. So he finds himself there, having been given a lift by Elizabeth Trent. He finds himself with the dinky doos. Elizabeth Trent is a middle-class woman. Again, should we say of a certain age? Yes, because in her society, she's seen as, she's an old maid, she's a spinster. And having looked after her father, she's now at something of a loose end. She has money, but there's nothing she really wants to do in life. She has this unwanted independence now. She's played by Judy Cornwell. Did I mention that John Stratton plays Jess Oakroyd? Well, I did now. No, this is one of the moments of by their fruits, you shall know them. Miss Trent meets, she's talking to Nigel Hawthorne, who's the local vicar, and he's terribly nice. And she's very sympathetic. His wife is not so nice. His wife is telling her what she should do with her life. She represents, I think, the social pressures that she's under. Reverend Chillingford just represents the idea of fulfilling yourself. He wants to go on a tour of cathedral cities. So he represents that idea of just not necessarily if it feels good, do it, but do something that gives you some lasting pleasure. And then she bumps into her nephew, Hilary, who is involved in a high artistic, philosophical, avant-garde movement known as the Statics. I guess it's a kind of stoic nihilism, existential thing. Very art house, atheistic, but he's just as nice as Reverend Chillingford. It doesn't really matter that they represent opposite sides of one way of living. They're both nice to Miss Trent. They're both deserving of our sympathy and hanging out with. And yes, I think I know. (laughs) So, what was was that Kaiser's name? Hillary. Static number three. Are you going to outline the static manifesto for us, is that? Oh, God, no. Okay, so this is only week number two. Now, we've mentioned on previous podcasts about how it was quite common to see a program be promoted on the front of the TV Times when it gets to its second week because, you know, people might have missed the first week and so on. So, you know, you still want people to come into it. And so there's there's plenty of sort of backstory and people can quickly catch up from episode one. Now, if episode two had been the first one that you'd seen, that would have thrown you the wrong way a bit, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd suddenly be thinking that Channel 4 has been invented two years ahead of its time. <laughs> After having a lovely sun-drenched tea and scones on the lawn of the vicarage, she has a chat with her nephew who outlines the manifesto of the movement he's in, which is something about taking the feelings out of things. Everything will be calm and clear. And he's terribly interested in, what does he say? Some like French movies or... He gets this weird glint in his eye when he's talking about all this. It's the youthful interest in the avant-garde. And he sings a song. We get the close-up and we then crossfade from him looking like himself to him in a bald cap and his head is entirely black but white shapes have been painted on his face. And he sings a fairly atonal song. 
Now, just to clarify for anybody who hasn't seen this, when you say his face is entirely black apart from white shapes that have been painted, instantly people are thinking of black well, no, no, sure, no. but it wasn't actually quite no, like they, that. Th- think it wasn't. more along the lines of Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Think of the video of Fade to Grey by the group that did Fade to Grey. Visage. That's the one. And yes, the song is just <laughs> about human misery and how he has the wisdom of the universe. It's not really as arrogant as it sounds. He's just outlining an avant-garde manifesto. And yes, it sounds like the kind of thing we were <laughs> criticising London Weekend Television for in 1968 when we did our show about that. God, yeah, I isolate this section. That could have been London Weekend's opening. I mean, we have him at the top of a tower throwing a crucifix off. But again, you, you're saying if this got adapted now, I think he'd be one of the first characters cut out completely. Because really, all he does is he comes along, he says, I've started an art movement and I need some money to move to London and we're going to expand it. She says, oh, I couldn't possibly. And then he says, I have to sell the car. So she buys the car and she needs the car to pick up Jess O'Croyd for that part of the narrative to tie up. But he's given his own song. We spent (laughs) several minutes. It felt like about 25 (laughs) in his company. And I love that. You start to wonder, I get what happened to the statics then? <laughs> when he turned up with his 200 quid, saying, we can move to London. It's a pity that Charfor wasn't around by this point, because I think that that could have made a nice companion drama. So at the end of The Good Companions, it's like, if you want to know more about Static Free, then switch over to Charfor now. Well, the memory cheats. My memory had been that right at the end of the series, we saw Nigel Hawthorne again on his tour of cathedrals, and we didn't. That was just planted in my memory. <laughs> I just assumed that he went off on his cathedral tour, and that we saw a little bit of it. He just wasn't just some mid-90s BBC2 programme, Nigel Hawthorne tours, tours cathedrals. <laughs> that is really odd, though. I mean, why would that have happened anyway in the story? You suddenly get a throwback to a character from episode two, and what he's doing is unrelated to everything. Because all these characters, whether they're principal or not, have importance placed upon them. And it wouldn't be that crazy. It would be maybe less than usual, but this is the whole thing. All of these characters, whether they're in a couple of scenes, one scene of three lines, they're important. Nobody gets blown up. And the hero makes a quip, despite the fact that there's bodies everywhere. (laughs) And our third character from outside the show business realm is Inigo Jolifant, who is Richard Stilgo. He's not played by Richard Stilgo. (laughs) I feel I should emphasise he's played by Jeremy Nicholas, but he's a teacher. impromptu rendition of Porter Cabin TV. Yeah, he pretty much does. He's a teacher at a minor public school. He is sick of the way it's run by the headmaster and, more importantly, by the headmaster's wife. Everybody has to have prunes for dessert except the headmaster's wife, who I think gets something nicer, claiming it's her digestion. There's no political point, I think, to be made about the public school system. He's just unhappy in his job, and he gets fired for getting drunk and insulting the headmaster's wife. But yes, one of the things we see is that he writes little songs and he sings a song about prunes. It's a cabaret patter song. If you're from after the golden age of the cabaret patter song, you're really only associated with Richard Stilgo and Kit and the Widow. Well, I've got one other suggestion as well. Okay. Eddie Cadle in The Meaning of Life. Yes. 
Oh, that's all we can talk about now because I have to go and stick my head in a bucket of water to wash out the theme tune to Nearly Departed. (laughs) Breaking news on that front, dear listeners. I have managed to acquire the entire series of Nearly Departed. If you'd like us to... You downloaded that? Yeah. I wasn't going to say downloaded, I was just going to say acquired. I didn't pay for it, for God's sake, not Maniac. Anyway... If you'd like us to speak at great length about that in a future edition of the Sitcom Club, then knock yourself out because we're not going to host it. But you can you can do it if you want, and then you know maybe send it to us on a C ninety or something like that. So Here's really, our three characters are in place: the one working class man, these two middle class figures, and they meet the troop that have been left in the lurch. It's not really irresponsible to skip over. The bit where they get named, but they their name is changed from the Dinky Doos to the Good Companions, and that's when our story really begins. And again, immediately, a narrative rule is, as far as I can see, broken. They don't start out small, and then things get a little dicey, and then they build to a great triumph. They start with the great triumph, using Miss Trent's money, using Jess's handyman skills, using Inigo's songs. They start a run on an end of the pier show, and everything just goes right. Are we going to end with episode four? When the comedian tells jokes, people laugh. People fall in love with both of the girl singers. Somebody falls in love with one of the boy singers and sends him a bouquet. And it's just peculiar. So should we talk about the company? Yes. Do you know what this reminded me of? Heidi High. Imagine Heidi High. As a mini series, with no laugh track, not necessarily bleak, but no, I yes, I know. What you mean it would be nice to hear how they all arrived there in the first place, and what their own personal backstory. Yes, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Actually, yes, I guess you can argue on being a terrible snob there. That story is told in the sitcom, but it's like no, it'd be interesting to see what it would have looked like in a different format. Well, the thing is that uh, there are similarities between Paul Shane and Brian Pringle in the two shows, because we're forever hearing about their characters' past and what they've been doing and so on. But in the case of Companions, we actually get to see a little bit of Morton Mitchum's journey there, and how he actually gets mixed up with Inigo en route to joining the Companions. So his whole boast is that he's been, how many times is it, three times around the world? I think it goes up to four, but we're through. He's a banjo player... And singer, magician, memory man, fond of a drink. But I'd say the Paul Shane type that is also taken by Jimmy Nunn, played by Frank Mills. He's a comedian of the I say, I say, I say type. And we find out later he might have had a slight brush with the possibility of success. Because Roy Kinnear's character is a very successful comedian. When Jimmy Nunn is mentioned, he goes, oh, he's an old friend of mine. And first you think, yeah. When you see him next, say, Aladdin, Scunthorpe Theatre Royal, whatever it was. So it's like, so Jimmy Nunn has worked with people who've gone on to huge success. It's just never happened to him. And his whole complaint is about his poor digestion and what he can and can't eat. Pity poor Jimmy. Elsie Longstaff, played by Vivian Martin. You recognised Vivian Martin from something, didn't you? She is Richard Wilson's secretary in High and Dry. Another Yorkshire production, but sort of on the other scale as far as budget is concerned. A sitcom about a peer, all on videotape in a studio. No outdoor work. She's a singer. 
she's been the ingenue and she hasn't grown out of it yet. But I think she knows she can't go on much longer. And it's through her sister that Miss Trent, it's a misunderstanding over the car. In fact, that's the thing I forgot to mention from episode two. Two characters, Robin Parkinson playing one of them. And what he's sort of a little office worker type man. Looks like a, an accountant in a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> yeah. He's a little man in a little black suit and he has a little mustache and he looks like a boar. And he's with a woman called Effie. And they have a musical number about how much they love each other. It's not laughing at them, though. It's like, these people have this enormous passion for each other. Let's give them a number as if they were... I'm going to say Jeanette MacDonald and Nelson Eddy, but I think that's a slightly (laughs) old-fashioned reference, even for me. Let's pretend that these two are... They're the heroes of this particular story. They are the central figures. In the musical of their love affair. Of course, he's a jerk and he runs out as soon as his wife finds out. <laughs> Again, as nice as that whole sequence was, there's quite a bit from episode two which doesn't necessarily need to be there. So in my mind, I'm sort of thinking about bits and pieces that could be lost to then get the action to the, the group a little bit quicker. But I like that. There isn't really much of a through line. As much as we said the story starts, it really is just a series of incidents. It's episodic. No, I agree. I, I like the approach as well. So I, like I like it, the, the it wanders around. Breathe, but I'm just trying to put my finger on why it is that it didn't make more of an impact in you know, the series overall. And I'm wondering if it's because perhaps... Maybe they should have made this as a as nine shows of three, two, one. <laughs> Back to the good companions. We have Joe Brundit. The singer. Is he a baritone or a tenor? I think he's a baritone. And his wife, Mrs. Joe. I'm not sure what the story is there. Because I'm going to say Mrs. Joe is um, not quite as gifted as Joe. Do you get the feeling that he's stayed true to his girl? I think so, yes. There's and a that he could have been more of a success yeah. without her. They're played by John Blythe and Joe Kendall. Simon Green is Jerry Jerningham. Ooh. Don't like Jerry. <laughs> I don't know that Jerry's meant to be like Oh no, that really comes across He's the juvenile lead And he thinks he is amazing Of course he is Very much liked by a particular section Of the audience, including one lady in particular But yeah, he's not necessarily He'd never be the hero of our story Now okay, here's a funny thing I like Inigo And I think that it would be very very Easy to Intensely dislike Inigo if he was portrayed in a slightly different way, it might even be just something really, really subtle. But I, I mean, I actually, I was going to say I don't want to name names because that's unfair to an actor. But then I can't even think of any particular names to be perfectly honest. But I just think that it would be really, really. Well, even easy just with slightly different be. direction, I think the same actor could have maybe. All he really needs is, as I say, when we first see him, he's just reacting to everything that's happening. As that's his stuff, absolutely. All he needs is for that to come across as slightly mocking. It's a middle-class man who's cleverer than all these people. This one section where I do actually lose sympathy with him, and that's where they're in the tea rooms. Oh, I know the bit you mean. They're talking with Jerry's number one fan, Lady Partlet. There's a section where Inigo is just laughing uncontrollably, and he sort of comes across a little bit in that instance as if he's putting down anybody else who's trying to chip in, but 
aside from that, no, Inigo is an odd character because he is multi-talented and also posh, and yet he's also extremely likable. And it would be very, very easy for him to become a sort of, not necessarily precocious, because the juvenile lead is precocious, but more along the lines of... Actually, this is a ridiculous comparison because this particular character I'm going to name isn't also particularly annoying, but Laddie Dad Gunner Graham. <laughs> he could come across as too clever by half and what have you, and therefore, rightly or wrongly, is put down by the other characters. But he's not. He's very popular with the crew. And I suspect that that's because with his skill and I suppose you would say to an extent privileged background and what have you, that is balanced by his lack of ambition in a nice way. He's not somebody who's you know, sitting there saying, yes, I know I'm a really good songwriter and yes, I will make a lot of money and I'll be churning out the hits for decades to come. So I'm just, you know, here for a couple of years and then I'll be going off elsewhere. You know, all of that's sort of taken as read, but he doesn't say it like that. And the fact that he thinks, well, I suppose I could probably go and see a publisher and maybe see about getting representation and what have you. But he's quite happy just to go on the journey. Well, in an interview what it is. with Priestley, Alan Plater put the point that he's the British gentleman amateur. He keeps saying of his compositions, a poor thing, but mine own. It's that thing of being talented, but it doesn't really do to blow your own trumpet. And what pushes him is he falls in love with Susie Dean, played by Jam Francis. And she is the upcoming young singer. My recollection is I haven't seen the 1950s film, but the 1930s film, I think just after a little time with Jess and Miss Trent, it really makes it the story of Inigo and Susie. I have to point this out because I know that at least one listener has already thought of this in the past few seconds. Inigo and Susie, Gary Sparrow and Phoebe. <laughs> Particularly in later years, because unlike Inigo, Gary Sparrow is not a talented songwriter. He's a thief. Yes. But yeah, but nevertheless, Phoebe doesn't know this, of course, and she keeps on pushing them to do something with this talent that she thinks he's got. And of course, he's got good reasons for not wanting to exploit this talent. But I couldn't help but be reminded of this when watching Companions because there are similarities. Do we think that perhaps there's an offshoot novel where we find out that Indigo actually has been sent back from 40 years previously and lifted all these songs? And actually, it's not 40 years previously, it's 40 years later. What the hell am I on about? Wouldn't that be nice if Indigo had started knocking out Beatles hits? As part of the concert party, that would have been weird, wouldn't it? J.B. Priestley wrote a series of plays, the time plays. J.B. Priestley was interested in time travel. Not so much time travel as the idea that history is all happening at once and it's possible to end up shifting. Well, the thing that Priestley's most famous for is an Inspector Cause, which just recently got adapted on BBC One. And I saw... A really just, fantastic just, just, stage production. Well, go on. No, I'm just going to stop you there and say, welcome to any listeners who are just joining us in the year 2017 when the Mark Gattis adaptation of Good Companions is now arriving on the BBC. I think it's pronounced okay. Gattis, you know, but... Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. He's not going to hear was that got wrong the other, who, who did I get wrong the other week? It was some musician, wasn't it? So I saw this fantastic stage production of An Inspector Calls with Mark McGann, 
as Inspector Ghoul. So the story set in 1912, but Mark McGann was wearing a D-mob suit. He looked like he was from the mid-40s. So it's interesting you should say that, but no, I think a different point's being, well, of course the point is not being made that Inigo Jolifant is from the future. <laughs> Inigo Jolifant, he's, was he at Cambridge? Inigo is very talented. He's a gifted amateur. Susie Dean is from a stage background. She's working. She might not be what we traditionally think of working class. And she is. She's frightfully posh. She's something of a flapper. She's got the bob haircut and slightly more makeup than people would have worn 10 years earlier. But she's working. She's, she knows what she wants and she's working for it. And this guy has it. And he's just a poor thing but mine own. And that's part of her rage. I'm not saying that this is a sort of shaking fist. Politics! Ugh! But it is a thing. Because this story is about different classes working together. And a vision of the classes will have to work together. But it's a case of, look, if you're that good, maybe you should break a sweat. Because it's galling for the rest of us to watch you be so frivolous about your great talents. More is asked because more is given. I was going to say, we haven't really touched the story. There is no story. You can argue that there are character arcs and people... Inigo has changed. Jess has changed. The characters have changed, but they're really changed as soon as they say, okay, we'll throw in with you guys. Inigo is the one who takes longer to change. But I think once Miss Trent says, look, you can have some of my money. I will, I'll travel with you. I'll help produce. I'll get things done. That's it. She's changed. And we're just watching that play out. But really, it's just one date after another. And some of them go well and some of them go badly. Oh, yes, another familiar face that turns up. And I've forgotten his name from Not On Your Nelly. Also, Smelly Ibbotson from The Dustbin Men. Do you know what? I've been trying to remember his name all damn day because I saw him in this yesterday and I saw him in Last Summer Wine earlier today and both times I've got his name. John Barrett? Yeah, John Barrett. That's it. Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, they go to one place and nobody ever comes to the theatre anymore. He talks about how many people they had in when they had a production of The Sign of the Cross. That was 20 years ago. And that gets them to breaking point. But even then, there's a little bit of salvation. Oh, I suppose now here, here's the thing. Talking about Jerry Nunn, we have a bit where it turns out that he's left his wife behind. And she's after him. She's a last of the summer wine type. Sour sort of hatchet fist matriarch. That's a, a theme running through this, if you can call it that, that the unexpected can suddenly arrive and that any character can suddenly become the focal point, maybe only of a section of the program. But you really can't predict where this is going to go. It's not, as you've already established, it's not told in a linear fashion, but also... As the narrator will point out, he'll sometimes say, this character is in the doldrums at the moment, but their story must wait because our attention's over here for now. Or can we mention Leslie Sands' narration? Shouldn't he narrate everything? <laughs> Bloody right. <laughs> and I agree with you that he should have played the corresponding part in Free's Company from <laughs> Man About the House. <laughs> It would have been odd, but nevertheless, it still should have happened. The first time I ever saw Leslie Sands was in something that no longer exists. Work that out. Was it a victim of the 1993 
children's BBC purge? No, it wasn't. Strangely enough, I don't know what the origin of this clip was, but on the internet, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, probably, somebody found a trailer for ITV 1977 and was like, oh, here's the shows that come on the autumn and what have you. It was a tiny little clip of a Leslie Crowther sitcom made by ATV called Big Boy Now. And there's this tiny little scene in this trailer where he's having an argument with Leslie Sands, but you don't know what, really what the context is. And then a few weeks after this trailer had gone into circulation on the internet, somebody actually found the three and a half minute clip of that program that had been used to make that trailer. So that's the only bit that still exists of this entire sitcom. Leslie Sands is a bookmaker and Leslie Crowder's been carrying on with his daughter and what have you and he wants to know what his intentions are and all this kind of stuff. But it's very odd to think that three minutes of a show which is otherwise gone still exists just by accident, really, because it'd been isolated to be used in a trailer. So that was the first time I ever saw Leslie Sands and uh, yeah, I've seen him obviously in quite a few things ever since because he's one of those characters who appears just here, there and everywhere. He's a sort of Norman Bird figure, isn't he? He just suddenly turns up in this episode of that and this episode of this and so on. But in this case, he's bringing his Bradford accent to bear because he's meant to be the voice of Priestley. They've clearly decided that there's enough important prose in the narration that it's worth preserving. And it is a really good method, isn't it? Because I think without the narration... I think you, it would be easy to get lost and, and to sort of lose the plot and what have you. And unless they actually completely turned the story on its head and actually did tell it in a linear fashion somehow, you'd have to actually deconstruct the entire piece then, wouldn't you? So, Mrs. Nunn comes and takes Jerry away, but Jerry comes back and he brings with him, was it a coach party? Yeah, 125 revelers. But there's that bit where they're writing letters when it's Christmas and they're writing letters to their different relatives and we get a bit of an internal monologue from them all. And there's just one bit and he says to his wife, he said it would have been different if Alice had lived. And that's just left there. I really should have read the book, but I'm such a slow reader, we wouldn't have been doing this till 2020. But again, that little brushstroke that indicates a much larger story. And in episode seven, things start to break up. Again, we're two episodes from the end. And like I said, episode four starts with a triumph and then we get the... Actually, can I mention Mad Men? <laughs> Please do. I'm having difficulty remembering everything happened towards the end of Mad Men, but there was definitely one bit. I think it was the penultimate episode. Maybe it was anti-penultimate. But the character of Peggy got a fantastic send-off before the last episode. Just a great moment where it's like, right, we've got a vision of how her story's going to continue. And then she came back for the last episode and it's like, we have to take this right up. We have to dot every I and cross every T. No, 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 no. We're not just leaving you with possibilities. You can't imagine Peggy's future. Come on. <laughs> uh, that's my Matthew Weiner impression. Thank you. Whereas this, Elsie Longstaff leaves in episode seven. She marries John Comer. It's the beginning of the breakup, but the breakup starts before the end. One thing that we should mention, by the way, Nine parts, three different title sequences. Yes. The title sequence number one is sort of establishing what we're about to see and the era and so on. And then the three episodes right in the middle, they're all about the good companions. This is the peak of their success. And then by episode seven, where we've still got another two episodes to go after that one, they're already singing goodbye to you. 
you know, we haven't really talked about the plot. Should we just avoid that? Should we just sidestep it? You know what? I, 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 think, I think actually, yes, we should, because it's such a good story. Not even this series, but it's such a good story. Why spoil it? Why why actually explain everything that happens? Let people discover it for themselves. And, you know, like you said, the, the show's available on network DVD. I presume that the book is available in some form or another, perhaps in all good bookshops. At the time of talking, it's either not yet come out or if it has, it's only just come out. The 1933 movie version, I haven't finished talking about it yet, but hey, let's do this good companion style and do things in the wrong (laughs) order. Let's start saying goodbye. Uh, The 1933 version is available on DVD from Network as part of the Jesse Matthews collection, possibly volume four. I'm not going to shine your shoes for you. You have to do a bit of the work. And the 1950s version is available on its own disc from Network. So they've got the good companions industry sewn up. Do you know what still needs to be released, though? A CD or indeed digital download version of the 1980s soundtrack, which was available on vinyl. Yes, yeah. You're talking about the Scottish Doctor. Aye. His song doesn't work. No. When he's chatting with Inigo and Susie. That's the first time. I've even, I mean, I thought Static 3 song was fantastic. I liked that it was there. But that's just like, no, this is just like an expository conversation. So I think songs are better when they reveal character. I do have one complaint, and I'm going to not skirt around it, but I'm going to explain it in such a way as it doesn't actually give away anything to do with the plot. If I was going to go into more detail, than it would. So we've got an appearance, as you mentioned earlier on, by Bill Dean, who turns up in all manner of different things. He turns up in live aborts and what have you, but he's best remembered for a recurring role in Brookside. Now, I would say that the storyline concerning his character, I think the resolution to that is somewhat disappointing because I was expecting to come to the next episode with a proper resolution to that, with a little bit of vengeance from those he had wronged. I'd have gone away with it too if it hadn't been for you meddling kids. Well, exactly. But as it sort of turns out, there is an on-screen conclusion to that storyline, but it's not really the whole deal, is it? I mean, it's like, okay, here's a kernel which is going to allow us to actually resolve this satisfactorily. But it would have been nice to actually see, you know, on behalf of the wronged parties, for them to actually be sort of proven right and ultimately be vindicated. Now, if you haven't seen this show, that makes no sense what I've just said. But perhaps in the book, the storyline is expanded in much more detail. Get used to the lack of bank crash endings. That's my advice. Even at the end with what's happening, some stories have not been resolved the way a more traditional story would have resolved them. And some characters kind of left there. So this idea that it was a bit too pleased with itself, it was a bit too clever for its own good, it was laughing at its own jokes. I don't think it's true up until the last half of the last episode. So episode (laughs) nine, we get a resolution to Jess's story. The narrative slows down once again for Jess. So maybe that contributes to that slight imbalance. Yeah, I was looking at it more along the lines of it comes full circle. In its own odd way, it is actually a conclusion to the story that we've been following for nine weeks. We have the, the narration talks about the Pennine Way, the backbone of England ad break then we come back and we have the epilogue and that's when all the good companions come back on and sing a little bit of their signature songs they're all on stage together and that's when it seems to (laughs) sort of assume huge amounts of goodwill i mean it built up a hell of a lot of goodwill 
but it just seemed like it was saying its catchphrase and winking. <laughs> I heard that. Pardon? When Jerry Nunn comes on and sings I'm a Policeman, that's the point, I think, which is like, yes, I remember the songs from the show, and yes, yes, they were good. Thank you. But that should have been Robin Bailey's number. It's ending fatigue, as I believe pop culture commentators call it. Could we perhaps truncate the first three episodes into two and so make this an eight-parter? Because it seems that we've got spare material in episodes two and nine. Or just expand that last half. Go into a bit more detail. about. I like the fact that there's a catch. It's something my wife complains about a lot of things. She likes when it goes past the ending. Something she complains about. She'd read all the Midsummer Murders books before she ever saw the TV series. And she said, the books tell you, right, this is what happened to this character and this is what happened to that character. And the TV series doesn't really do that. And... Some shows we watch, the credits kick in as soon as the baddie dies. Not Midsummer Murders, but just um, things like ITC programs. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, we need a bit of time to depressurize. So I guess it's an appealing quality that it's just like, yes, by the way, we've, we've made you invest in these characters and we've told you that each and every one of them is important. It's more the constant turning up of the songs again and again and again. Maybe that would have been better done in the more naturalistic style of, I'd say naturalistic. The rest of the series is a lot of location work. And then suddenly for the last half, we're all in a theatre, watching them just dancing about. And in my memory, they're singing quicker and quicker and quicker. <laughs> Should we mention the last shot of the show? That's not too much of a spoiler, is oh, it? Oh, yeah. No, because well, I already I already alluded to it earlier on because I mentioned that everything in this series is on videotape, with the exception of the very last scene. So the very last scene is the narration from J.B. Priestley himself. Cut to him in what I presume is his study, and he reads the closing words of the book. And I'd like to think that maybe that's from an earlier abandoned version, where it was just nine episodes of 16mm J.B. Priestley in his study <laughs> reading the book to you. He looks a little bit ticked off, doesn't he? <laughs> Also, I was expecting him to close the book and fling it into the camera. <laughs> well, it does end on a quite sudden freeze frame. So, who knows? What I might describe as a Henry Winkler freeze frame ending. No, please explain. <laughs> now, if you don't get that reference, then who the hell else is going to... Right, there's a clip. It's on a very good little website called TV Arc, And it's some continuity from 1983. And one of the clips is Henry Winkler in full Fonzie mode saying, eee! I just want to say... Merry Christmas to all my great friends at London Weekend Television. And then it stops just like that. And he's clearly about to say something else. But whatever it was, you know, it didn't go out. It's about to fling a copy of The Good Companions into the camera. <laughs> so you think that J.B. Priestley read the last words, closed the book, and went, eh. <laughs> <laughs> Why ever not? I felt, John, that's not quite what we're looking for. <laughs> no, I admit, I'm an ignoramus. I don't know about things. so. I have to be absolutely honest and say that before we started recording this evening, I did not actually know when J.B. Priestley's era was. And so I assumed when I saw that, that that was from maybe sort of 20 years previously or something like that. I didn't know that he was still alive at the time that this show went out. At the time the show went out, it was 96. There was a making of documentary that Yorkshire Television put out that is on the DVD. And I think Priestley actually... Turns upon location. I think you see him chatting to Jan Francis. 
just good friends. Well, no, I'm going to look at, well, no, because I'm pretty sure if a gifted dramatist like J.B. Priestley had been within the vicinity of John Sullivan, he might have had a few words with him about how to improve Royal Flush. <laughs> I'm now imagining Royal Flush as an inspector calls, that Del Boy just tears this posh family apart. <laughs> so this has been another one of those shows where we've just noodled around. But with a show like The Good Companions, you kind of have well, to. Yeah, I think you're right, yes. I think that I don't see any point in going into detail about the plot because people will discover that for themselves if they want to. I said this earlier one, I really, really enjoyed this show and I wasn't sure how I was going to get on with it. I don't always like everything that's put in front of me. I, I lasted five minutes in front of Laura and Disorder, famously. But I say famously, I mean, nobody's aware of that apart from myself. I found it a very engaging show and I think that it was, without being unfair to any versions that have come along since, and I think there's a radio version from 2010, so I'm excluding that because I've not heard it, but I suspect that television version of this today would probably not come across quite as well. It probably would be a little bit condescending and perhaps sort of looking down on the whole community players era. I don't get the sense of that at all with this. This is a loving adaptation of this. They've also spent quite a bit on the budget, haven't they? That last sequence in that last episode was the only time where I actually thought this looks like a YTV studio. People might find that that sounds a bit odd when you're saying it's all on videotape. Because sometimes, for whatever reason, your videotape, sometimes it comes across as always a little bit on the cheap or whatever. But no, it really doesn't. I will defend videotape. We need to start a society. It works for some things. It's intimate and it's direct. Do you happen to know, because I don't, and if you don't, it doesn't matter. But do you happen to know where that peer is that's in the show? I don't. Well, look that up and we'll bring that to you in the future, Jeff Gates for Bruce, because I presume that it's a real peer somewhere because it's a bit too good to be in the back of Kirkstall. It's like, while you were there, why didn't you make high and dry? <laughs> <laughs> well, that honestly, I've, I've said that before. I say I've said that before. I don't know if I've said it before or not. I've definitely thought it before. But High and Dry should have been an on-film location shoot. It should have been like a little two or three part series and you know, it should have been the real thing. Character finds this broken down old pier and wants to restore it. And there you go. Yeah, you could have done a lovely job with that in the right location. But no, instead you've got Bernard Crippens and Richard Wilson. They're in a rowing boat and they're rowing around the, the pier. But it's all in a studio indoors. It does look odd, to be honest. But yeah. Anyway, I think the line that I'm going to quote most often from The Good Companions is, I left so much I missed the last tram. There were quite a few quotable lines, and we're going to do a show next week on the sitcom club with many more quotable lines. But I did like that line. He was a very, very narrow-minded individual. Rugby union man. <laughs> a little bit of topicality there. Next week on the sitcom club... We're going to return to 1973 i might even get the copy of the radio times from that week out because it's actually sitting in this room with me as we speak and we're going to delve into the first of the last of the summer wine series one including the pilot with the original lineup of compo clegg and blaymeyer and in two weeks time on jeffa kicks for proust you may remember a couple of times in earlier shows, Mooncat mentioned how he'd never watched Doctor Who before. Hold on to your hat, we're going to talk about Doctor Who. Because it's an easy way of drawing attention to oneself. We want your <laughs> clicks! We want your downloads! 
Is it fair to... Well, we're not revealing anything about which particular story it is just now, but is it fair to say that it's... It's from between 1963 and 1989. Okay, so original run. And when you see the title pop up on Twitter in the MP3 text, you think, huh? Why that one? What? That's sort of how I was watching the first two episodes of it as well. <laughs> At the time of recording, I've still got two more episodes to go. But it's an enlightening experience. If you've got anything for us at all, you can tweet us at the Sitcom Club. And when we're returning with the Sitcom Club next week, we'll discuss your tweets from over the summer before we get down to club business. And you can also email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. You can find all of our previous podcasts at both sitcomclub.com and also at podnose.com as well. So thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on the Sitcom Club. And after that, Jaffa Cakes for Proust.